is it uh, is it uh, kind of a Nostradamus kind of book, especially when you read a part like Revelation, which is the you know the magical mystery tour of Bible books. It's crazy and very difficult to understand. And you think, I don't. Am I supposed to like ferret out the uh, hidden mysterious secrets in this to learn about the future, or you know, if this is really from God? Uh, are there codes embedded in it that I'm supposed to be able to ascertain and discern? You know, how am I supposed to treat it? So all those questions come up for us, and some of which I want us to think about tonight. I'm going to probably raise more questions than I try to answer, but um, you'll get used to that anyway. What we are going to do is try to understand and embrace the way Jesus leads and rules his church through his written word. That he actually exercises his relationship with us and has his relationship with us through his written word. And so that's what we're going to think about. Let me pray for us, and then we'll read this passage of Scripture. Father, we ask that you would grant us uh, wisdom as we listen to your word. We uh, believe that you not only um, inspired it uh, so that it's true, but that you also walk among the lampstands of the churches yourself and make these things real to us. So as we listen, we pray that you would make yourself real to us. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So read with me, beginning of verse 1 of Revelation 1. That's, the text is printed in your bulletin if you don't have a Bible with you. It says, This is the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave to him to show his servants the things that must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. Now, blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it, for the time is near. John, to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come, and from the seven spirits who are before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of the kings on earth. To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom, priests to serve his God and Father. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. And all the tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Even so, amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus, was on the island called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. I was in the spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet saying, write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus, to Smyrna, to Pergamum, to Thyatira, to Sardis, to Philadelphia, and to Laodicea. And this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So, I know you're probably still trying to recover from the shock that you came to church and the preacher likes the Bible and wants you to like the Bible. Um, but, yes, it's true. It sort of feels like... Um, 
You hear stories of grandmothers hiding money in freshmen's Bibles when they go off to college. So about November, when they finally open it, they find the money and like, oh, grandma wanted me to read my Bible more. You know, and you think, okay, yeah, um, I guess I should, right? It's kind of like diet and exercise. I should be, you know, more respectful about the Bible. I should probably read the Bible more. Um, but to be honest, most of the time when we do read the Bible, there's a lot about it that's difficult. Um, it's easy for it to feel like a cultural artifact where you're just thinking this is sort of hard to understand and it feels, it feels very ancient because it is very ancient. And so it's hard to know exactly how to uh, benefit from it a lot, not easy to make that much sense of it. Sometimes the parts that are pretty clear and you understand scandalize you. You think, ah, I can't believe that's in there and that it's not like uh, forbidden or criticized. It's just there in what happens in the story. Um, and it's very intrusive. When you read the Bible, it's not just, it's not like a Westerner reading the I Ching or something who, you know, I'm just going to dip into this and, you know, let's get some insights, you know, and that I can mention at my next dinner party and feel very profound and tell everybody, you know, I'm a really deeply spiritual person and, you know, let me quote the I Ching. You don't get that with the Bible. The Bible's just uh, very relentlessly demanding in your face all the time, uh, pressing on you. So it's hard to read. Uh, disinterestedly or casually just dipping in for nuggets of inspiration. Stay with me on my example here. I'm going to apologize to Walker Percy up front because I'm stealing some of this from him. But uh, sometimes the Bible, and especially Revelation, can be like one of those magic eye pictures. You remember those? You know, they're dots and points. I don't know how it's painted, but if you stare at the picture that looks like nothing for long enough, eventually, you know, the picture will pop out and it's a ship or it's a tiger or something. You go, whoa, I see it now. That's amazing. And I think uh, you look at Revelation and you think, wow, it must be kind of like that because when I look at it at first, it doesn't make any sense to me. And I guess if I stare at it long enough, something's going to jump out. But what if you had a magic eye picture and what jumped out of it was not a picture of something, but it was actually a message that it was letters that you could suddenly read. And uh, I'm fanciful here. Um, the letters that you're reading this magic eye picture say... Um, this is a message from another world. Um, we're from an alien, uh, we're from a different planet in your galaxy, but we've been watching and studying you, and I'm here with an urgent message for you. Uh, the, the next and last of the Earth's great wars is going to start within the month, and it's going to be nuclear annihilation almost everywhere. Um, there's nothing you can do to stop this. Uh, it's going to happen. The only consolation I can offer you is that having studied uh, your meteorology and predicting the fallout patterns for the uh, nuclear explosions, there's one place that you can go where you might be able to survive and be safe. It's a cave in Lost Cove, Tennessee, and there's fresh water supply there, and there are provisions of food there that should last for the foreseeable future, but you must go there immediately. That's what the magic eye picture said when you're headed. Now, what's your response to the poster, to this magic eye picture? You think, hmm, well, you could just talk a good bit about how weird these magic eye pictures are. You know, how does the human eye work and the brain sort things out through the optic nerve? It's amazing, isn't it? You know, I looked at that for a long time and didn't see anything, but now I see words. Wow. That could be one response to it. It wouldn't be 
off subject necessarily, but it'd be a strange response. You could debate about the source of the message. Ooh, I don't know if I can take that seriously. That seems sort of incredible that this is how uh, aliens would speak to us if they did and through a magic eye picture. But yeah, so we could debate whether it's credible through the source of it or not. Um, you might, if you're in a university community, have people talk about whether we should really take this literally or whether it's metaphorical or should we it's kind of read a response. To me, you know, the message means this or that. You know, you could bat it around that way. How are we supposed to read such messages? Or you could, if you found it even the slightest bit credible, get your sorry rear end to Lost Cove, Tennessee and find that cave before it's too late, right? Um, that's kind of what Revelation does to us. It gives us as strange a message as that and as crazy a message as that and presses it hard on us about the same way. It says, look, this isn't just information for you uh, that's novel where you can kind of... Uh, look in like Nostradamus to find the secrets about the future. There's not much about that in Revelation, honestly. Uh, this is a message from the heaven's view of the world that says this is the way things really are. It goes against everything you can see and it pushes down on you with uh, immense intrusiveness and you have to deal with it. Revelation comes to us that way. It says the truest and most important parts of your reality are not visible. Now, what kind of crazy person thinks that's true? That the truest and most important parts of your reality are not things that you can see. Um, that sounds unpatriotic to me just to say it out loud, right? But the most important part of reality is not seen. That the most significant facts of your existence are that Jesus Christ has risen from the dead. That He's coming on the clouds. That doesn't mean His second coming. That means His enthronement. It's, it's a reference to Daniel 7 where one like a son of man comes on the clouds into the throne room of the Ancient of Days and is given a kingdom that will never end with everlasting dominion. It's a, it's a reference any Jewish reader would have gotten. He's being enthroned in the heavens and right now rules the kings of the earth. That he is the ruler of the kings of the earth, John says, which is a pretty amazing political fact to believe that almost nobody around you believes. And that he is the Lord and judge of history. None of these things is observable. None of these things is provable in any kind of an empirical sense. And yet, we're told that these are the most important facts of our reality. It's a lot to believe. It raises a lot of problems. Again, more than I'm going to answer. But it's a hard problem because almost no one does believe it. And it's pretty hard to believe something that most of the people around you don't believe. And most of the smart people around you don't believe. Um, it's very hard to believe things like that. People either laugh at this or they ignore it. But the idea that you think it's actually true, that what's really going on in the world is that Jesus is the ruler of the kings of the earth and he's directing history towards his goal and his judgment and his recreation of the world uh, into the new heavens and the new earth. Um, if people thought you actually believed that, they might worry that you're delusional. They might worry uh, that you're mentally ill. I think that wouldn't be surprising, right, with your friends. Um, other thing is that our imaginations about the world are shaped so much visually by what we see. And we don't see Jesus exalted at the right hand of the Father, at the helm of the world, ruling the world. Um, we read about that. And so it's, it's not on video in our minds. Our imaginations aren't easily shaped by it because we're so visual in what we see. So that makes it hard. Um, 
if it's true that the most important things in our reality are not seen, uh, it means that you can't trust your common sense and your instincts and your sense of what's normal very much. Like, you have to say, gosh, I, there's a lot here I wouldn't have assumed and I'm being told is the very truth of God. And that's disconcerting, right? To say, I can't trust my instincts. I can't trust my sentiments and my judgments as much as I want to, as much as I've been trained to. Um, and, and it's intimidating if this is true because there is a voice of authority in your life that you don't control if God is speaking through John his very words to us. Uh, there's an authority in your life that you can ask questions of but that you can't really resist. Um, and that's intimidating. It's, it's very strange. What other book presses on you that way? So I want us to look a little more deeply at a couple of the problems that come up here. One is the problem of authority that the Bible brings to us. And the other is the problem of plausibility. Uh, it's hard to believe what the Bible says. So first is the authority problem. Here we have Jesus himself saying he speaks through the scriptures. That this is the way he exercises authority in relationship with us. Is he speaks through the scripture. And um, it's pretty clear that that's what he's doing. This is maybe one of the most dense passages in the whole Bible about what the Bible is. But, you know, he says, first, this is a revelation of Jesus Christ, an apocalypse, an unveiling. You're being shown things that you otherwise would have no way to know through what God is saying here. But it's God himself speaking. It's the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave. And that's a dramatic claim for a Jewish man to make, right? Who takes scripture super seriously, who believes that it really comes from God. And he's saying, what I am saying with my mouth and my pen is like the same level as an Old Testament prophet. Um, it's like hearing Jesus Christ himself speak. And he would never make a claim like that lightly. But he says, God gave him to this. And he sent an angel to John. Not all the scripture writers uh, encounter angels. Some do. It's not like that's the one way that God only ever speaks to the biblical writers. But in this case, he sends an angel to John. And... Uh, and then he comes to John, who claims in verse three, um, in two, his own uh, authority, because Jesus told his twelve close followers, the apostles, that you're going to speak for me. Whoever hears you, hears me. The things that I've said to you, I'm going to bring back to your mind, and so you can speak authoritatively for me. Nobody else has that authority besides them. He says, "I'm the one who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ." That's what all the apostles did, right? They were the eyeball witnesses of what Jesus uh, said and did in his ministry and of his resurrection. They saw it. And they were sent not to present their insights to the world religiously. They were sent to present news to the world of what they had seen. And so they're authorized by Jesus to speak for him as none of us is and no one we know is. So here's John. He's going to speak for Jesus in this, now in this vision that he's given in the same authoritative way. He says in verse 9, he's in exile because of this news about Jesus. He's on Patmos, a uh, prison colony um, from the Romans because the Romans were so scared of, of uh, ethereal gurus who were espousing interesting religious opinions. Of course they weren't. He wouldn't be in exile because of that. He was in exile because of the news of Jesus. He said there's a rival king to Caesar and he's a greater king than Caesar and Caesar must bow the knee to him. And therefore he was a threat and he was sent to Patmos 
to be in exile. The Roman, he was one of the only apostles that wasn't directly killed um, because of his witness to Jesus Christ, which also adds to his credibility and theirs. So, and he says, I heard a voice behind me in worship on the Lord's Day, uh, Sunday, uh, and, and the voice said, write this in a book. He didn't say, this isn't the reflection of the church many centuries later saying, you know, uh, it would probably help us if we could kind of craft a mythology behind our desire to hold on to power. Uh, and so we'll write Revelation. It, he said, no, this is John, the eyewitness himself of Jesus' resurrection, being told to write in a book, which he did. And he writes it to the seven churches. And there are more than seven churches in Asia. It's a, it's a number of completeness. Numbers are a big deal in Revelation. So it's really a letter to all the churches, to the variety of churches. And we're going to look at them serially over the coming weeks, Lord willing. And so here's the claim, right? I'm speaking for Jesus. He came and told me, he presented me these things. I heard and saw these things that I'm telling you. And uh, my testimony is credible. There, you have every reason to believe that this is true. Um, so when we hear in the gospel reading the voice from heaven that says, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. Listen to him. Um, the way we do that is by listening to the scripture. Right? That God himself speaks through the scripture. Do you, that's either going to bore you or that's going to bring up a lot of resistance in your mind. I think if you're thinking hard about it. You think, but, 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 but wait, wait. When people talk this way about authority and religion, it makes me nervous because it sounds like something someone would say if they're trying to preserve their own power uh, or trying to reinforce their prejudices or somebody who thinks, hey, the Bible backs up uh, my view of the world that I really wish everyone else agreed with. So I'm going to make a big deal about the Bible's truthfulness and authority uh, so I, don't, I can impose my prejudices on other people more easily. I can preserve my power as, and position in the church. Now, would human beings ever do such a thing as that? Yeah, Jesus said the Pharisees were doing exactly that. You're taking my word and you're using it just to establish and maintain your power and your prejudices and impose them on other people. You're abusing my word that way. So yeah, people do that. Um, and all of us can do that. That's why it feels like the real question with Bible, biblical authority is whose interpretation of it? Like, who's got their hands on the controls, and why? What are their interests? And that's a, that's a good and hard question. Yeah. At the time of the Reformation, it was a hard, it was a big question, because the, the uh, medieval church had said, well, you can't just have willy-nilly everybody interpret things the way they want to. Somebody's got to have, like, the boss interpretation. And uh, I guess that has to be the church, right? The magisterium of the church. And if you... We believe the Bible's from God, but the interpretation has to be authoritative. That has to be the church. And the Protestant reformers were like, yeah, I, I know, but <laughs> the church has erred pretty often and pretty egregiously. So, like, if the church has the monopoly interpretation and they're wrong, what are you going to do with that? And the medieval church said, yeah, but... <laughs> If you just let everybody interpret it on their own and put it out in everybody's vernacular language, then you're going to have, you know, as many magisteria as you have um, Bible readers, and 
the whole thing's going to be all in a huge swirl, fractured church, a million denominations, and everybody with a Bible thinking that they can read it better than anybody else, and the church is going to be in turmoil. I'm glad that didn't happen, right? And so the struggles are, what do you do? You know, you need authoritative interpretation, and yet uh, nobody's got a perfect interpretation. And so the best answer that I think the church has come up with is to say that ultimately the Scripture has to be an authority over the church. The church has to be answerable to the Bible. We have to be correctable by what we read in Scripture as we read it better. But Christians need the church to read the Bible. Uh, Private interpretation was... uh, No magisterial reformer was in favor of private Bible interpretation. (laughs) They didn't say, just go home under your tree. You don't need anybody... Uh, to tell you or explain things to you. You can just figure it out. You need the church. That's why he says, you know, blessed are those who read it aloud and hear it and keep it. It's a church thing. The letter is written not to individual Christians in Asia. The letter is written to the churches in Asia. The church, you have to have a deference to the church in the way that you interpret the Bible. Knowing that your church's interpretation isn't perfect. So a couple of implications to that. One is... Uh, Test what you hear from your church. Like you shouldn't just take your minister's word for what the scripture says. Right? You should be critical in your listening and thinking about that. Nicely critical, but critical. Not, you, know, you have to think about it because you know I, I don't have interpretation cornered. On the other hand, if you come up with an idea or you're listening to someone who's come up with an idea that the church hasn't pretty much always believed everywhere... Well, don't listen to them because it's probably not true, right? uh, uh, You're not going to come up with a novel notion about the Bible. Um, You're just not. And nobody you're listening to is either. Now, there might be a crazy exception that proves the rule. It's not you. It's not here. Um, Don't come up with something new. We're not looking for novelty in the church and understanding and explaining the Bible. Uh, We have to defer. So another pushback, though, is how, how do I accept the authority of the Bible, God's own word, when I find a lot of it to be regressive, like in areas of science or gender? I think, I'm, I'm bothered by what it says. I'm not just, uh, not just hard to understand. I'm troubled by this. Um, what do you do with that? Is that an easy question for you? <laughs> um, because guess what? The Bible doesn't reinforce all of your prejudices. It doesn't agree with you on everything. Um, that's weird, though. Wouldn't you think God would think just like you? But apparently not. Um, here, a couple of responses to that, though. When you find things uh, culturally problematic for you when you read the Bible, just know that everyone always has. may not be your problems that you have with the Bible, but everybody's always had problems with the Bible culturally. Um, ours in particular... You know, press on us, especially I think areas like science and gender. Those are some of the harder ones. Sexual ethics, um, and the nature of history. A lot of those, a lot of things like that are tough for us. Um, I'll give you two kind of uh, thoughts about that. One is, uh, if the Bible seems regressive to you, like people a hundred years ago didn't mind this because they were stupid and weren't enlightened like me, and people two hundred years ago didn't understand this because they were stupid and not enlightened like me. Well, what do you think people a hundred years from now are going to think about you? 
right? My kids already think I'm in the dark ages, right? Like, it didn't take 100 years, and it's like... Regressive is a moving target, and um, don't be so sure that your fantastic, enlightened sentiments uh, won't be embarrassing before long. So there's room for some modesty uh, with regard to that. That's not a complete answer. The other answer is that when you're looking at the Bible's authority, you should really focus on the central things that the Bible teaches and that Christians have roundly agreed upon across the continents and across the years. The Apostles' Creed, the Nicene Creed level kind of things. Um, A lot of things, uh, like with regard to science and gender, are things that a lot of Christians don't agree about that are difficult places of interpretation for us. And um, because some things are more clear than other things in the Bible. And I'll just say this, if science troubles you, don't don't assume that uh, middle 20th century modernists were great Bible readers. Those who spoke most loudly about the importance of the Bible's authority often weren't the best people at reading it. And so a lot of the scientific assumptions and the conflict between science and Scripture that people talk about today, a lot of that comes from us not being very good at reading the Bible. Uh, Not because there's so much animosity between what we see in the visible world and what God says in the Scripture. So pull back a little bit uh, with concerns about uh, Scripture being regressive and you have to be somewhat patient to say we're not going to know everything. We're not going to get everything nailed uh, in our lifetimes. And so there's a way that you can defer to God and be patient about the things that you don't know. But the central things that the church has always believed press on us with real authority. Problem for us, I feel like in our little circle, some of you are new to our little Presbyterian circle. We've always sort of waved the flag about how important we think the Bible is and how true the Bible is and how important it is to think that the Bible's true. And it is. That's clearly the case. It's important to believe that God is behind the Bible, that it's really his words in our language. But it's not enough just to have a good view of the Bible if that's all you have is a good view of the Bible. I mean... Unless the Bible is intruding into your life and reshaping your imagination, unless you're hearing it and keeping it, to use John's terms here, then um, it doesn't matter if you have a high view of the Bible or not. What matters is, is there, is there a high functionality of the Bible in your life or not? And that's the harder question for us, I think, you know. And the way you see it probably best is, are you, are you willing to be contradicted by the Bible? Do you have parts of the Bible where you think, well, if I was writing this, I wouldn't write that. I wouldn't have made it up this way. I don't agree morally with God in these issues. Do you have issues like that in your mind with the Bible? Or does God completely agree with you morally and with all of your sentiments? Um, It seems unlikely to me that you have the uh, immaculate perceptions uh, so that God never would disagree with you. And so when you read the Bible, does it contradict you? So like when you're screaming about the importance of the Bible's authority being really the Word of God and really inspired by Him, are you doing that because you're bothered by somebody else's sexuality or because you're convicted about your own bigotry? Because the authority of the Bible works this way. It says, yeah, there's a lot that's said about sexuality that's going to disagree with what's in our culture. But there's also a lot said about religious prejudice and bigotry inside of me that needs to be uh, contradicted as well. And if I'm yelling about how important the 
the truth of the scriptures are, it needs to be as much about how I'm being confronted by the scriptures as it does about how I think the scriptures force you to agree with me. Because if, if there isn't that internal drive in it, you're probably doing what the Pharisees did, which is trying to leverage the, the truth of the Scripture to support your own prejudices. And so that's a tough challenge for us with the Bible's authority. Um, okay. Plausibility problem, more briefly. Sorry. Um, what we're told here um, is hard to believe. I mean, what John, John says pretty clearly here is that Jesus' rule is the whole story of history. He's come to rescue the world, set it back right side up. He says He's freed us from our sins through His blood. That means on the cross He ended our war with God, took on our punishment as rebels, and now He's brought us into His family, a kingdom and priests to serve as God and Father. We've taken on the Old Testament mantle of His agents in the world to love Him and to invite other people into relationship with Him. That's what we are as the church. That's what's happening in history. And he's unraveling all the, the collateral damage from our war with him until the day he returns. Establishes a new heaven and a new earth. The resurrection of the dead where we have bodies that work again for the first time. Where we live with him in a world that works right. And that's the goal and telos of history. And um, nothing that you ever see in your life reinforces that belief. Um, no class you take reinforces that belief. Uh, no conversations with friends outside the church probably will ever reinforce that belief. It's an amazing thing to believe. Um, I'm not going to argue at length for the truth of those claims. I'm just going to say if you believe them, you're in for a fight because it's hard to maintain that belief. It's hard to hold on to that belief when a lot of people around you don't believe it. If you're going to believe it here in a town where not many people are Christians, relatively speaking, for America anyway... Um, you're not going to get your beliefs reinforced that this invisible, magical kingdom world that you believe in is really true. Nobody's going to support that. And it's why we desperately need each other in the church. We have to believe these things together or we won't be able to believe them at all. And I'm not saying that because I think the beliefs are flimsy or they're not true. I'm just saying our ability to believe is flimsy. And we have to believe together. That's why we read aloud and hear and preach the Word and eat the Word together, uh, biblically speaking. Uh, together, because plausibility for our faith uh, can only be maintained when we're together. You can't just believe this by yourself. You're not that tough. That's why the letter goes to the churches, not to the Christians in Asia. And it sounds weak. I'm not saying it's not true. I'm just saying nobody believes things in a vacuum socially. We all believe things in, in a tribe. And that's the way God made us. Uh, um, so we, the sociologists say that our knowledge is socially conditioned. Our beliefs are socially conditioned. The Bible says we're covenantal creatures. We live in relationship. We believe in relationship. That's why when Dan and Brittany are going to pound on students on campus saying, look, the church is important, the church is important, the church is important, they're not saying that just to keep up the traditions of the church uh, or because they think church is super entertaining. Um, because it's not super entertaining. It never has been. They're saying the church matters. The church matters because Jesus is here walking among the lampstands of the church 
speaking to us. And he intends for us to know him together and believe in him together as church. Uh, That's the way he has designed it. He is here speaking through his word to the church. Because look, you, you live in a world of propaganda, right? Just like the Asian churches lived under Roman propaganda that the Roman Empire was everything to them and they were surrounded and immersed by it. You know, here's the great Roman military. Here are all the public buildings and temples that reinforce what they say they believe. You know, here are all the prosperity of Rome, um, the roads, the Pax Romana, the power of Caesar, the ideology of Rome that just made Roman rule seem normal and commonsensical to them. They see it all the time. It's the most important political fact in their life is that Rome rules. And... The churches are puny little groups of people who have no power, no influence and authority and who seem to exist because Caesar's willing to let them in his great mercy. And they're trying to think, well, how am I supposed to hold on to belief that Jesus is the king of the rulers of the earth? That Caesar's power is paltry compared to Jesus' power. How am I supposed to believe that? It looks to me like Jesus ascended and left power on earth to Rome. And same for you and me. We live in the Pax Americana. The prosperity of America is all around us. The, the propaganda of the advertising and of the civic uh, rituals is all around us. It's so normal. It's so real seeming. The prosperity, the military might, the civil religion, the skyscrapers, the flags, the flyovers. And thank you, America, for granting us religious rights so that we, uh, at the benef- beneficence of the American government, are allowed to live and believe what we believe. Uh, but it's, they're the boss. If they decide we can't live this way and believe this way, we have to stop. You know, it's, it seems every political fact we know is that power resides in Washington, D.C. And uh, that's as normal and real to us uh, as anything we can observe and see. And here John comes to press on us that Jesus did not ascend in order to leave power in the hands of Washington, D.C., that he ascended to the helm of the world, that he is the ruler of the kings of the earth now, that all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to him, that the kingdoms of this world have become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ. How are you going to believe that? How are you going to get that into your head and into your imagination? Because you can't see it. How are you going to believe that? And the answer is that you're going to gather together in puny little churches with very unimpressive people and sing the songs that we sing, pray the prayers that we pray, and read the Scriptures and hear them and preach them and eat them to be reinforced because Jesus is here walking among the lampstands of the churches. This little church. Jesus says He walks here among the lampstands with us. That He is present here by His Holy Spirit. And when two or more of us are gathered, He is present in all of His authority with us to speak the word of forgiveness of sins, to speak the word of benediction and blessing over your life, to feed you at His table because He wants you there. That that is the unseen reality of what's happening even in a little group like us with people just like us. No more gifted, no more impressive. So, that's what we come together to do. And... uh, If we don't, we'll wither in our faith because nothing else will reinforce this. So when we hear the voice from heaven that says, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased, hear him, listen to him. 
The way we do that is by listening to him in his word in the church. Now let's pray.